the National Archives podcast series, Tourists and Booking Clerks, Information for Family Historians in the Thomas Cook Archives, presented by Paul Smith. You haven't heard me yet. <laughs> right, welcome everybody. This afternoon I'm going to talk to you for an hour or so about the Thomas Cook Archives. Now, I'm going to put that into a little bit of context, first of all. So I will give you a little bit of overview on the company history, but I'll try and be very brief on that. I mean, normally when I give talks, I talk for an hour just on the first 50 years of the company history, so I'll, I'll try not to do that today. And so I want to concentrate on the archives, sort of what they are, where they are, how you can access them, what sort of information you can expect to find in them, and how useful, or not, they might be for those of you who have ancestors who either travelled with Thomas Cook or worked for Thomas Cook. And there are lots of people out there who fall into those categories. So that's the, roughly the layout of what we're going to do uh, this afternoon. Then I'll just summarise at the end. That's a nice Edwardian poster, by the way, if you're wondering what that image is. And that, at the bottom is the, the uniformed man. And they, they were quite uh, ubiquitous at that time. So the first thing I want to say, really, is that Thomas Cook holds unique position in the travel industry. The modern travel industry really starts with Thomas Cook uh, in 1841 and consequently the records of the company that we have in the Thomas Cook archives are also, to a large extent, the records of the industry. So we have material which relates to all aspects of Thomas Cook's history but also to all manner of transport developments, geographical uh, locations, because most destinations that you can visit today on a holiday you could actually get to in the late 19th century. So there are very few new destinations in that sense. So the archives are, are unique and really there isn't another travel company or another travel archive certainly of the same scale as Thomas Cook anywhere in the world. So we'll start with a, a little bit of background, brief introduction to, to the, the company and what it is that Thomas Cook did back in the 19th century. I've, I've split it up into six little, little segments, uh, each of which has its own characteristics and, and importance. Uh, and I'll just run through the, the key events in those periods and also what records we have from each of those segments. So the first part, as you see there, uh, 1841 to 1873. Now this really is where it all starts. This is Thomas Cook's period, so Thomas Cook, the man himself. We take the, the starting point of our history as the 5th of July, 1841. And it's on that day that Thomas Cook conducted his very first excursion, which was a rail journey from Leicester to nearby Loughborough, just 12 miles away, to a temperance gathering. Now, Thomas Cook was a, a supporter of the temperance movement, which essentially was all about teetotalism. Uh, so Thomas Cook took the pledge and, and didn't drink from the 1830s onwards. But also it was about social improvement. Temperance supporters believed that alcohol lay at the root of all problems in Victorian England and therefore Thomas hit upon the idea of organising excursions, initially by rail, to get people, sort of the masses if you like, out of the drinking establishments and actually encourage them to do something more useful with their life. So that's really what drove Thomas. Thomas was not a businessman. Thomas was never in it for money. He was not driven by profit. Thomas was an idealist. So all of his early tours were organised on behalf of the local temperance society, local Sunday schools, and it's only later on that he starts to actually organise trips for profit. His first of those came in 1845, a trip to Liverpool. In 1846 he goes to Scotland and introduces a lot of English people to the Scottish Highlands for the first time. And it's really in Scotland that Thomas transforms himself from being an organiser of cheap excursions into a, a fully-fledged tour manager. In the mid-1850s, he visits the continent for the first time, goes to the Paris exhibition, uh, and organises what is really the first package holiday, in that he organised a complete tour, including accommodation, food, even arranged foreign exchange for his customers, uh, and he led that tour in 1855. In the 1860s, he goes to Switzerland for the first time, he visits Italy, America, and Egypt and takes parties of tourists to all these places. Uh, but it's really Switzerland and Egypt which are the, the, the two destinations which owe most to Thomas Cook 
and to his son John, because in those places tourism really didn't exist in, the, in an organised way before they went, and they really transformed it. Thomas Cook then goes around the world. He organises a tour around the world in 1872 to 73. He's gone from home for a total of 222 days. He takes in America, Japan, China, India, um, and, and ends up in Egypt, part of this tour. The advertised cost for that trip was £300. That's really the climax of Thomas's career, and although he's involved with the company for a few more years after that, really from 1873 onwards, it's his son, John Mason Cook, who is running the business. Now, John is a very different character from his father. John is a businessman. John sees the potential of tourism as, as a business and as an industry. And John decides that if he's going to make any money out of this business, he has to improve the social cachet of the Thomas Cook name. So he tries to encourage the wealthier classes of society to travel with Thomas Cook, or Thomas Cook and Son, as it's now known. To that end, first of all, he opens that little building there. That was our first head office. That's at Ludgate Circus in the city of London, at the end of Fleet Street, the bottom of St Paul's Hill. And that building is still there. You could take that photograph and you could go and find that building. You could stand right in front of it and it doesn't look that different. I mean, all the, the Thomas Cook references have long gone, but the building still looks very similar to that. And that was the head office for Thomas Cook through to the mid-1920s. Now, John decided that he needed to appeal to these, these wealthier members of society. Um, so he, he had this office. Um, he started to try and offer services that weren't there before. So not just cheap tickets, but John introduces things like railway timetables, like guidebooks. Um, he introduces the uniformed men, which we just saw on the poster earlier. All of these things, extra little services to the travelling public. Uh, and he also introduces the circular note, which was an early form of traveller's cheque in 1874 as well. He's very successful in what he does. And by the 1880s, Thomas Cook, or John specifically, but Thomas Cook, the company, is being approached by people like the British government to help transport General Wolseley's army 550 miles up the Nile from Asyut to Wadi Halfa as part of the Gordon Relief Expedition. The Indian government comes to John and asks him to sort out the pilgrimages to Mecca for the people travelling from India to Mecca as part of the Hajj in 1886. In 1887 and 1897, Thomas Cook and Son are asked to organise a lot of the travel for the foreign dignitaries coming to London for Queen Victoria's Golden and Diamond Jubilees. In 1896, Thomas Cook and Son become official passenger agents for the first modern Olympic Games. Uh, and in 1898, John is asked to escort the German Kaiser around the Holy Land on a little tour that cost £50,000. Unfortunately, that tour killed John. Uh, he contracted dysentery while he was travelling, and the following year he died at the age of 65. The company then passed into the hands of his three sons, although we, we tend to talk about two of them, Frank and Ernest, because the youngest, Thomas Albert, who was known as Bert, was actually bought out by the other two fairly early on. So this period, 1899 to 1928, sees the introduction of things uh, like um, motorised travel, so we have motorised charabangs taking city tours for tourists of London, Paris and Berlin. So the equivalent of your open-top bus tours today, they were in existence in about 1910. We have, obviously, 1919 onwards, air travel for the first time. And Thomas Cook is there as a travel agent uh, selling tickets in Easter 1919. Also, as, a, as an agent selling tickets for trips from London to Paris or London to Brussels which at the time cost something like 30 guineas. And that was in 1919. Also, as you see, the, the, the brochure there is actually advertising the first escorted tour from Cairo to the Cape. And that was in 1922, the first one, which again was a, a huge uh, sort of operation at the time. So lots of changes in that period, lots of changes in travel. But the company by this time is making huge amounts of money. You know, the whole world is travelling with Thomas Cook from, as it's put by one journalist, from the heir to the throne to the humblest greengrocer. They all travel with Thomas Cook. In 1928, Frank and Ernest retired and the 
company passed out of family hands for the first time. In the 1930s, the company was owned by Wagon Lee, the international sleeping car company who ran the Orient Express and other luxury trains across Europe. Later on, during the war, the company passes into the hands of the railways and then, in 1948, becomes nationalised. And so, for the next 24 years, Thomas Cook is, in fact, a nationally owned company. And there are, consequently, some records relating to that here in the National Archives. But, of course, it's in this period in the 50s and 60s that modern tourism, as most people think of it, sort of starts with charter planes, uh, flights to the sun, all the, and cheap holidays, all this sort of thing. Um, now, Thomas Cook, on the one hand, really had very little to do with that. Thomas Cook didn't sell on price. Thomas Cook sold on service. So there's a lot of new companies coming into being uh, in the 50s and 60s. And although Thomas Cook, for the whole of that period, remains the largest travel company in the world, and indeed, in the mid-60s, its profits exceed £1 million for the first time, it begins to lose ground, lose market share, because things are changing. The new generation want cheaper holidays, not necessarily luxury holidays. This does change a little bit in the 70s. Obviously, there's, there's oil prices increase in the early 70s, there's a recession, and a lot of travel companies, a lot of new travel companies, actually go out of business. Thomas Cook survives that. We are denationalized in 1972. Midland Bank become the owners. And so we're owned by a bank for the next 20 years. And there's lots of, lots of changes, lots of rationalization takes place within the company. So a lot of departments and functions that are developed were sort of sold off. So a shipping and forwarding division that we had alongside our main travel and financial services functions was sold off. A holiday camp that we'd built and run at Prestatyn in North Wales was sold off. Real estate in the heart of Cairo, which we had had since the late 19th century and was basically our shipping yard for the Nile fleet, uh, that was sold off in the 70s. Also in the 70s, uh, a new corporate identity was introduced, which was the words Thomas Cook in flame red, or orange, as most people remember it. And of course, the most administrative departments moved from London to Peterborough. So we actually moved the first departments up to Peterborough in the 70s. <coughs> During the 1980s, Thomas Cook concentrates on, as a tour operator, long-haul operations, and as a travel agent, expanding its retail network. Uh, in the late 80s, we also introduced Thomas Cook Direct, so you can actually book holidays by telephone for the first time. And in 1995, uh, the first website, the first corporate pages on the website, on the internet, appear. So the final 15 years or so have uh, seen a lot of change. Um, I actually joined the company in 1996 uh, in London, which is where we were based at that point. Uh, and since then, it's been constant change. Uh, lots of mergers, acquisitions, sales, change of owners. It's just been constant. So it all starts in 96. We acquire Sun World. So Thomas Cook really, for the first time in 1996, becomes a mass market player in, in the travel industry. Prior to that, it's been concentrating on its role as a travel agent and as a long-haul tour operator. But in 96, it goes back into the mass market, short-haul operations, um, as, as we still are today. Um, now, really, that harks back to Thomas. Because Thomas was all about mass market and selling on price, uh, rather than John, who was something different. Um, more acquisitions follow, flying colours, uh, time off, a merger with Carlson, a launch of JMC in 1999, which... You may remember, or may not. That was meant to be John Mason Cook, the, the initials of Thomas's son. That was the idea. But I don't think many people understood that at the time. And so uh, JMC didn't survive that long. And of course, we now have an airline. In 1996, when we bought Some World, we also acquired Airworld. So we now have a, a huge fleet of planes as well. More changes in 2001. Thomas Cook sold off its financial services division completely to TravelX, although Five years later, we started going back into it again, so we now have a financial services division once more. And then in 2001, the, the core travel business that remained was actually sold to a German travel company called Condor and Neckermann, and that's when the new logo that you see there was introduced. Then, rather strangely, Condor and Neckermann changed their name to Thomas Cook. It's all very confusing. So they became Thomas Cook AG, and then the latest big merger came in 2007 when Thomas Cook merged with MyTravel and obviously inherited the Air Tours brand 
and at the same time, of course, Thompson and First Choice merged, so the, the four big players in the industry became two, and that's the position we're in today. So, not bad, 10 minutes. So, that's sort of a brief run-through of 169 years of history. So, let's now turn to the archives themselves. The archives actually have their origins in the 1950s. That's when they were first set up as a distinct department. A decision was made, a conscious decision was made to bring all the material that survived in various offices, both in the UK and around the world, uh, into one place. Now, that place in the 1950s was a little room on one of the upper floors of Barclay Street, which was our, our headquarters from the 20s through to the 90s. It moved several times whilst in Barclay Street, and when I joined, it was on the, the ground floor um, in a purpose-built area um, that had been set up in 1991 um, with lots of PR money, because that was the company's 150th anniversary. Um, but initially, it was, it was up, up on the fourth floor in a little room. And over that time, sort of 50s, 60s, it had various names. It was known as the Company Museum. It was also known as the Records and Relics Department, quite bizarrely. And in fact, through the whole of that period, prior to my arrival in 96, there had only been four archivists. But all my predecessors were long-serving, semi-retired members of Thomas Cook's staff. So I, I'm a professional archivist, so I was appointed from outside as, to come in and run the archives. But all of my predecessors were Thomas Cook people, first and foremost. And for most of that period as well, the archives actually was run by what was called the publicity department, which sort of covers both PR and marketing functions today. So the archives were, shall we say, looted from time to time. In the 60s, we know a lot of material was thrown away simply because the room was of a finite size and as more material came in, the material went out. So we know there are gaps in our brochure collection um, and we know who, who signed them off as well. And in the 70s and 80s, a lot of material was actually given away sort of as, as a corporate gift, a PR thank you, you know, there's, there's certain volumes have just disappeared. And we know they've gone missing because in the 1950s, the very first archivist, a man with a wonderful name of Derek Inkpen, who had been joined the company back in the Edwardian times, he actually made a list. And we have this huge volume, it's about this fat, a huge volume. And it's just a list, list, literally, of everything that was in the archives. Now, most of that material is still there, but there are one or two things which seem to have gone missing over the years. So today we are in Peterborough. I say we, although there is only me. I am a department of one. I did have assistants once upon a time. I vaguely remember when we were in Barclay Street in London, there were actually three and a half of us. But over the years, that's, that's been dwindled down due to various cutbacks. So there is now only me. In Peterborough, we have three sites, effectively. I have a large storeroom. I have an area which has desks for myself, for a researcher, just one researcher, but a researcher. Um, and we have a number of showcases and wall space to display original items from the archives. We also have in the main reception on site, because this is the Thomas Cook UK headquarters we're talking in Peterborough, uh, we also have a big display which covers a potted history from 1841 to the present day. Uh, but that's mostly for external visitors who sit in reception, because very, very few staff go through reception. So that's, that's where we are. So the scope of the archive, what, what do we have? Um, well, the collecting policy actually is quite broad. Essentially, anything with a Thomas Cook connection, however vague, may end up in the archives. In the past, there are, there are things that have come in which have got nothing to do with Thomas Cook, um, but I do at least try and have a Thomas Cook connection today for anything that is offered, offered to us. And we are offered things on a, a regular basis. Um, obviously, there's internal material being transferred to the archives, but externally, I get offers from usually people whose ancestors either worked for Thomas Cook or travelled with Thomas Cook. So I'll get offered old training notes or, um, I mean, the last thing I picked up from a, a little old lady in Chesterfield whose grandmother travelled with Thomas Cook to Switzerland in 1884 uh, and she had the original guidebook and in it were lots of her grandmother's notes. So she'd actually annotated the guidebook, uh, which is wonderful. Also, there are a few illustrations and some souvenirs. You've got two little shells which have got Swiss scenes painted onto them. And sort of something I hadn't seen before, though we've got it in photographs, an actual alpenstock, so a walking stick. It's about this tall, it's six foot tall. Um, but it's actually engraved with her name and the date and all the places they visited all around. So it's, you know, 
You never know what's going to turn up. All sorts of things come into the archives. Do you have uniforms? We have some, yeah. yeah. I mean, shop uniforms don't actually start until 1977. So they're fairly recent, and we have, there have been quite a few since then, about six or seven different ones. Um, but prior to that, it's the, it's the uniformed men, as, as you saw. We have some of those, yeah. Uh, and that uniform didn't change that much. I mean, they're around for the best part of a century, but they don't change very much. The hat changes, but the actual coat doesn't change vastly. And we have one or two of those. And you had brochures and uh, posters straight away, did you? Um, yep, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to those. I'll show you those. <laughs> so, the scope of the archives is, is vast, basically. Anything and everything to do with Thomas Cook from the earliest days in the 1840s right through to the present. And what we'll do, we'll come on to the main collections in the archives in a moment. Now, as far as use goes, the archives are used, obviously, quite extensively by internal departments, um, so the press office, publicity department, uh, marketing from time to time, legal department if they need to, to refer back to some old booking conditions, um, the publishing department looking for inspiration, and anybody else. I mean, company anniversaries get flagged up, and that's part of my role is to sort of highlight all the anniversaries, and the, there are lots of those, and then it's up to PR or marketing to decide whether they want to, to use the anniversaries or not. As far as external users are concerned, the two main groups really are academics, um, as you might expect, and the media. Now these, both of these groups can come from anywhere in the world. So we have a lot of academic interest from, usually in, term, in visitors, they, they're usually postgraduates upwards. Um, but in terms of inquiries, it could be anything from seven-year-olds studying the Victorians at school uh, right through to undergraduates and onwards. But they will come because you know, the records we have are unique. They can't find them anywhere else. And they will travel. And it's very odd because sometimes you find it's more likely that I will get a researcher coming from America or Australia um, than somebody from Manchester or Bristol. Peterborough's obviously quite difficult to get to from the west side of the country. The media, again, can be newspaper, television. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of television producers tend to come along because you know, the history of travel is you know, of interest to everybody. Travel has this universal appeal, and there's always something. You can find a destination, a period, a mode of transport. You know, we touch on all of that in the archives. Um, and so you get travel producers, TV producers, who are looking at you know, producing a programme on travelling up the Nile or travelling across Europe, tours across America, you name it. Not all of them end up being made, but there's a lot of producers come along to have a look. And there's two or three in the pipeline at the moment, so you never know. And of course, in, in recent times, another group of users have been family historians. Now, we'll come on to in a moment exactly what we have that might be of use to family historians, which is a little bit hit and miss, I'll, I'll say that. The main collections within the archives, so broadly speaking, the main collections are, first of all, the brochures. By far, the biggest collection we have is the brochure collection. Now, there are examples going right back to well, I guess 1845, you could argue. The, the, the early handbooks that Thomas Cook produced are really more of a guidebook, more of a brochure than a guidebook, in that they are talking about specific tours uh, rather than specific places. So the earliest handbooks for the trips to Liverpool, the trips to Scotland in the 1840s, are sort of brochures. The earliest brochure proper really starts 1858. We have a guide to Cook's tours in Scotland, and 1865, which you did see earlier, when on the first screen talking about Thomas Cook in the history section, there was a guide to Cook's tours in France, Switzerland and Italy. Well, that dates from 1865. So that's, that's really the first continental brochure. Uh, but the main collection starts about 1890, and from that point onwards, with one or two exceptions where things were thrown away in later years, we have samples from every year, uh, and many examples from many years. So the total collection is, is certainly over 5,000 items. Now it's probably nearer to 10,000 now. Because, of course, I also inherited fairly recently the, the Air Tours, my travel collection. Now that, even though they only go back as a tour operator to the early 1980s, there were over 1,000 brochures in that collection. So, yeah, we, we must be approaching 10,000 now. And as far as I know, it must be the biggest collection of holiday brochures anywhere. I mean, nobody else is going to have a collection that big. There is no other company that can have, 
amass them in-house, and a private collector just wouldn't find them because the brochures very rarely come up for sale. Guidebooks do, but the brochures are much more difficult to track down because they weren't designed to last. You know, they were ephemeral. But the brochures are great because you have, obviously, the images. I mean, you've got the wonderful covers. I mean, that's a nice Edwardian brochure. So you've it's got the... Manchester, it? Yeah. No, but it was from the Manchester office. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so <laughs> we have um, samples from, I say, all, all destinations, to all destinations, really. You've got the illustrated covers. You have the information inside, you've got the prices, the itineraries. There are photographs in them really from, well, pretty much from day one. Where, where they have illustrated covers, they tend to have photographs inside, even in the 1890s. And then you've got the, you know, the descriptions of the places. And you can see how they change over time. And that's what makes it wonderful, is the fact that for somewhere like Egypt or Italy or Switzerland or Paris, we have them, not quite for every year perhaps, but certainly for every few years we have an example. Winter sports, actually, is probably the most complete set. Uh, our first winter sports brochure was issued in 1908, and we have probably 90 winter sports brochures over the next 100 years. Um, so you can actually trace how winter sports changed. Originally, in the, in the first one, it was only Switzerland, and there was no skiing. It was skating and tobogganing only. So you can see how it changes and how the dress changes. I mean, the, the, the winter sports clothing is wonderful. So there's all sorts of things you can find from the brochure collection, and, and people do. Probably the most important collection in terms of informational content is actually this second collection, which is The Excursionist. Now, The Excursionist began life as a newspaper published, printed and written by Thomas himself in 1851. And it was originally called Cook's Exhibition Herald and Excursion Advertiser. And its purpose, primarily, was to promote Thomas Cook's arrangements from the Midlands to the Great Exhibition in London. Um, it was a 16-page newspaper, and rather boldly, he advertised, published weekly on it, uh, whereas, in fact, he only published five issues during the, the six-month period that the Great Exhibition was on. But it is full of information about travelling to the Great Exhibition, what you could expect to see, why you should go, how much it cost, all these sorts of things. And then the excursion advertiser part which was the, the second part, um, was all about trips to other places like Matlock, Chatsworth, you know, these sorts of places, and some seaside resorts as well. Now, originally, Thomas had intended this publication only to exist for that period, 1851. But it becomes a regular publication, and it gets the generic title of The Excursionist. It has various subtitles over the years, but it's always The Cook's Excursionist. And it just contains... It, it, it becomes a monthly publication, and it contains vast amounts of detail about travel. So if you want to know how much it costs to travel from London to Paris, it's there, every issue. Um, so you can track the changes. But, I mean, you've got the details of travel to Paris, to Switzerland, you've got tours to Italy, to Rome. Uh, you've got Egypt, around the world, transatlantic steamer prices... Uh, cross-channel ferry prices, you know, you name it. But in fact, the most important or the most interesting section is probably the editorial notes at the beginning, because there you find references to the latest railway route opening, the latest route over the Alps or tunnel through the Alps. Uh, there are references to a channel tunnel in 1894. So it's just full of information. So you've got a whole social history there. Now, the excursionist continues as a, as a newspaper uh, up until 1902. Uh, that's the cover it has in the 1890s. And then in 1902, it's transformed by Frank and Ernest, Thomas Cook's grandsons, who are in charge by then, into the Traveller's Gazette, which is a more formal, in some ways less interesting, magazine, um, which doesn't have the, the personal approach that the excursionist had. It contains, yes, lots of details of prices and fares and itineraries in the same way. It has travel articles, which are fantastic. I mean, I, I often sort of plunder those for quotes for our current Cook's Tours brochure. I get asked to find quotes that refer to trips we do today and try and find some historical connections. So I, I always use those. Um, so the travel articles are fantastic, which don't appear in the excursionist. That's a traveller's gazette. Uh, item only. But it is very, very much more formal 
it, it, it is less personal and you don't get the certainly the, the articles by Thomas which appeared in the very early issues of the excursionist uh, and even those by John in the 1870s you, know, you still have accounts of trips that they have made so in the pages of the excursionist you've got Thomas's account of his first trip to Egypt, his first trip to Switzerland, Thomas and John's first trips to America, as well as testimonial letters from customers as well. So there's just a vast amount of detail. And in total, it lasts from 1851 to 1939. So you have 88 years worth of travel history, so the history of tourism in that one publication. Now, the excursionists can be found elsewhere, when the British Library does have a set, although for some reason it starts in the 1860s. It doesn't have the first 15 years. But what we also have in the archives are various foreign editions of The Excursionist. So one of the things John introduced uh, was overseas versions. So we have, from 1873 onwards, an American version of The Excursionist published in New York. So it's aimed at North Americans. Um, so what you find in, in those pages are trips to California, trips to Alaska, trips to the Caribbean, trips to South America, which don't appear in the English edition, um, until the 1890s. You know, you've got this 20-year difference. So there's, there's a whole different perspective. So for people studying transatlantic tourism in the late 19th century, you've got two sources there. Now, as far as I know, there is nowhere else in England or America that has both sets. So you can't compare them side by side. Now, other, other editions continue. The French edition starts in 1881. Um, Australasian and Oriental versions start in about 1890. And by the 1920s, there are actually 13 different editions of the Traveller's Gazette in publication around the world, all of which we have in the archives. <coughs> guidebooks and timetables, we have lots of those. Um, Thomas Cook started his own series of guidebooks uh, in 1874. Um, they were very much, in look, they're very similar to the, the Murrays and Baedekers uh, that existed already, but in content they're very different. Um, they cover basically the routes that Thomas Cook's tourists followed, so it doesn't have all the detail, uh, the minute detail that you would find in a, in a, a Baedeker or a Murray, but they're, they're more geared towards Thomas Cook's customers, which is obviously who they were aimed at. Now, guidebooks start in 1874, they publish about 65 different titles, various editions of each, through to 1939. And then publication stops. So as the Traveller's Gazette stops, the guidebooks stop. And although we do publish guidebooks again today, the, the current range of guidebooks only really started in 1993. So there is this, this gap. With the timetable, however, and that is the, the very first issue, that's the cover of the first issue of Cook's Continental Timetable. Now that is still published today as Thomas Cook's European Rail Timetable. That started in 1873, so a year before the guidebooks. And with the exception of the Second World War years, it has been published continuously since 1873. For the first 10 years, it was quarterly, but from 1883 onwards, it has been a monthly publication. Now, I won't say we have every single issue in the archives, and we don't. We have large gaps, certainly, in the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But from... 1909 onwards, we're fairly complete, and from 1946 onwards, the post-war issues, we're missing literally a handful of, of copies. Now, the purpose of the timetable in 1873 and today was essentially the same. It is a cheap, inverted commas, I mean, that's obviously down to you. It, it's a cheap, concise summary of all the main European railways. So it's very handy for independent travellers, backpackers, or anybody travelling across Europe today, and it still sells. In, in hard copy, it still sells, you know, very well. But it's been doing so for over 130 years. And they do get used, surprisingly. I get a lot of... Well, it tends to be either rail enthusiasts or writers. I get a lot of writers of historical fiction who are trying to, you know, place their characters in certain places and wanted to know if it was possible to travel from A to B at a, a particular time. So we have all the, obviously, the, the timings in there, but we don't have prices. But if it falls in the period up to 1939, the prices will be in the Traveller's Gazette or the Excursionist. Also in those, in the timetables, you find exchange rates. So we've actually got exchange rates in there all the way back and lists of Cook's offices as well. So a list of our offices, which also appeared in the Traveller's Gazette and the Excursionist, appear in the timetable. 
Okay, a couple of <laughs> broad categories now. Ephemera. Now, obviously, th th well, we'll come on to this again in a moment as a, a sp specific collection for, for tourists, tourist records. But we have a lot of miscellaneous items in the archives which have been donated by travellers or their descendants. So they can be anything from tickets, hotel menus, invoices and bills, as well as diaries, personal accounts of trips, photographs. We have some photograph albums as well. And then lots of you know, documentary sort of letters, printed receipts, things like that. Uh, hotel coupons, which was something Thomas Cook introduced in the 1860s as a sort of prepaid accommodation to go with your prepaid tickets. And finally, company business records. And again, that's a fairly broad category. But there we have records relating to, obviously, finance records, corporate records, legal records. I will say staff records, although, as, as we'll see in a moment, we don't have staff files, or we don't have files and individual members of staff, but there are records relating to staff, sort of terms of employment, staff rules, which we have a, a wonderful list of rules from 1925, one of which was that males under the age of 25 could not marry without their management's permission. And females, if they married, had to leave the company. That was in 1925. OK, records that specifically apply to sort of ancestors, so, so fam family historian type records. Basically, you've got the tourists or the booking clerks, the customers or the staff. Now, as far as specific customer records go, the first thing I have to say is we don't keep booking records. We don't have lists and lists of booking records of everybody who travelled with Thomas Cook. Although some people think that we ought to have. What we do have Obviously, we have all the details that I've explained in the excursionist and the guidebooks. We have the details of travel. So if you know that your ancestor did you know, a tour of Switzerland in the 1880s, then I can probably find you the itinerary they would have gone on. I can tell you how much it cost. I can tell you where they went. I can give you accounts in some other people's diaries, probably, of what they saw. So we have that level of detail. But in terms of you know, when your ancestor went, if you don't know, I can't tell you that. I won't have a list. But we have a whole collection of diaries in the archives, probably 50 or 60 of them. Some handwritten and hand-illustrated, as in this case, which is actually the, the best example we have. That one dates from 1863 and is an account by a young lady called Miss Jemima who travelled on Thomas Cook's very first Swiss tour. Now, we have Thomas's account in The Excursionist of that trip, but what we have there is a customer account of that whole tour. And it's not just on Monday we went to Geneva, you know, on Tuesday we got on the train. It, it's not that at all. It is very well written. Uh, it's very Austin-esque in parts. It's very witty. There are a lot of remarks about fellow travellers, about people they meet, places they visit. It's, it's, it's very interesting to read. Now, there is actually a, a copy of that in 1963 on the centenary of that first tour, a facsimile copy, or at least a copy of the text, was printed. So that does exist in, in book format. And it's amazing how many English-speaking people in Switzerland have read it. Because I actually took it out to be displayed at the Geneva State Archive a few years ago. And all the English people I met had read that book. They all knew about Miss Jemima. So she is famous. But we have lots. Handwritten copies, we have sometimes, some are just photocopies, some are typescript versions, some are actually printed. Some people printed their diaries. So they went off on holiday, came back, wrote up their notes, had them printed and then circulated to their friends. And we have a few of those. The earliest ones we have actually date from 1855, which are the diaries of three sisters who went with Thomas Cook to Paris the first time he went to the continent, the Thomas Cook's first continental tour we have, again, an account of people who went there. Photographs. Now, I put that there. I mean, photographs... We have a huge collection of photographs, but many of them are anonymous. You know, this is a group photo, in this case, in the ruins of Pompeii in 1868. However, for some of them, such as this one, this was a formal group photograph taken by a professional photographer and then made available for sale to all of the people who went on that tour. Thomas Cook's actually on that tour. He's there, sitting right at the front in the dark suit, just to the right of the gentleman in the very light suit. So Thomas is just about coming up to 60 on that photo. But we have a copy of that photograph 
with all the names annotated. We have a list. It's framed around the outside of the picture. We have all the names of the people in that photograph. So we can tell you who went on that particular tour in 1868. It's unusual. We don't have lots of those. Uh, we have lots of photographs, but not lots with names on. But we have, you know, if you want to see, you know, if you know your ancestor was travelling to Italy in 1868, that's what they would have wore. And what's interesting about what they wear as well is that you can compare photographs of Cook's tourists in Italy, Egypt, Scotland, Paris, America, even the Holy Land, they're all dressed the same. There is no concession to the climate whatsoever. They're all dressed in their Sunday best with hats and everything. And it's just bizarre. So if you, if you actually wanted to try and identify where they were from what they were wearing, you'd have no chance. Um, but they're brilliant. I mean, they're fascinating. You can look at those for hours. They're wonderful. We have even more for Egypt, actually. Uh, we have a lot of material relating to Egypt. It's probably the, the largest collection of both business records and customer photographs, and actually also passenger lists. We do have some, but the only passenger list, or sorry, the only 99% of the passenger lists we have relate to Thomas Cook's Nile steamers. And they also only cover us about three or four year period. So if you know your ancestor travelled on the Nile with Thomas Cook in the early 1890s, then I can probably find you a list of passengers uh, and I can tell you exactly who they were travelling with, I can tell you how much it cost, I can tell you the dates they went, where they went, because all of those itineraries exist. But we don't have that level of detail for anything else. Um, but those, those again are wonderful. And you often find, you know, Professor this, Lord and Lady that, you know, there's all sorts of people appear on those, on those passenger lists. <coughs> so in terms of sort of customer records, records that refer to specific travellers, specific customers, those are the main sources. The equivalent for staff we have, firstly, probably the staff magazines. Now, the staff magazines actually start in 1911. That's, that, there, are no, there are none before that. They start in 1911 and the original staff magazine, which was called the Ludgate Circus Club magazine, was actually a mouthpiece of the sports and social club. So if your ancestor worked for Thomas Cook and was a sporting person, then they are undoubtedly going to appear in there at some point. Um, if they played football, rugby, cricket, swimming, they, they will be in there. And it's also, it, it's amazing how many different societies they had you know, in the late Edwardian period. They had a, a dramatic society. In the 1920s, we actually had our own orchestra and operatic society. In the early 1920s, Thomas Cook could put on an opera. And we have some of the programmes. It's just phenomenal. Um, but it, we had our own sports ground as well, actually, out at Ravensbourne in Kent. And so there's a lot of records about that. So if, if, if they were involved in, in a, you know, a sporting activity, if they were a sporting person, then we can probably find a reference to them. 1911 to 1914 is this Ludgate Circus Club magazine. There's then a gap. The staff magazine starts up again in 1923 and runs through to 1930. And at this point, it's known as the Globetrotter. Now, that, that period, 1923 to 30, is probably the most useful. Those are probably the most useful staff magazines we have because they still contain a lot of sports and social references, but they also start to refer more to staff at large. And by this time, yeah, we've got offices all over the world. I mean, literally all over the world. Uh, and so there are references to staff from those offices in there as well. But what you find in the 20s are retirement notices and obituaries with complete career synopses of people who joined 40 and 50 years before. So these are the people who set up the company in the 1870s with John in the 1880s. And you find them all retiring after 40, 50 years service. I mean, the one that I've put up there is only there because I actually had an inquiry about this particular person just a couple of weeks ago. A descendant of Mr. Durant Thorpe contacted me and wanted to know if I had anything in the archives. Now, he, he, he worked for the company for over 50 years. We don't have that many references to him, but first point of call is the staff magazines, which we have indexed at least up to 1989. From 1911 to 1989, they are indexed um, because for that period, there is only a single staff magazine. After 1989, they start to proliferate and there are different magazines for different parts of the business. And, uh, it just gets very complicated. I don't have time to index those at the moment. But we found this and he was you know, overwhelmed. The fact that we had a photograph 
uh, was fantastic. And it gives it, you know, you, you've got a complete career synopsis there. But he's referring to the fact that, you know, he, he was employed by John in the 1870s. He knew John Mason Cook, and therefore he would have known Thomas, because Thomas was around then as well. So this is a guy who, not retiring until the 1920s, actually knew both Thomas and John. Uh, and all the, all the people who actually built up the company in the earliest days. Um, so that sort of thing is great. But, you know, it's, again, it's for a limited period. You know, if your ancestor retired in the 20s and had done you know, a decent amount of service, then yes, they will probably get a reference. Now, there are, there are lists in the back of the staff magazines in the 20s and later for staff who have joined the company, transferred, left the company, but though literally it is a list not, not even with a date in the early years. It is literally this last month or this last quarter, these people have moved or transferred offices. Um, those are not indexed, but you know, if, if you had somebody who was, you know, worked in a branch, moved from one to another, we can probably find roughly when that happened. So we could piece together possibly a career path for somebody who worked for Thomas Cook you know, over those years, from the 1920s and later. So before the 1920s, you have to hope that they had a long career and they retired in the 20s. Photographs. Now, photographs crop up for staff as they crop up for tourists. We also have a whole series of photographs of offices as well. So we have lots of photographs in the archives. That is actually an exception. Uh, that photograph is taken in 1955, and that is Mr. Donald White, who was our uniformed man at Victoria Station for many, many years. And in fact, he is... His, his claim to fame is that he ha actually had a little tea card with his image on it. So, you know, in, in, in tea, you used to get, if, you, if you're old enough, you remember in the tea, you used to get little cards. Well, he, yeah, so the, the tea cards are sort of similar. But he was on one of those. So, and we have it in the archives, actually. That's his claim to fame. Uh, as well as actually knowing all the politicians and sort of members of the royal family of the day, because they, most of them passed through Victoria Station, and he was on first-name terms with pretty much everybody who travelled on a Cook's ticket. Most of our staff photographs actually date from the 1890s, so they're earlier, uh, much earlier. We actually have two photograph albums from the 1890s, which we believe were commissioned for the company's Golden Jubilee in 1891, because most of them date from, from then. But we don't know why there were two, because some, some people appear in both, <laughs> uh, and other people only appear in one, uh, and they're not the same format. Uh, they're, they're two different sizes, different types, but they're about the same period, so they're early 1890s. But they are indexed, so we have a list of all the people. Um, I won't say it's, it's, it's a list of everybody who worked for the company at that time, but there's a fair few of them, uh, and certainly all of the branch managers, all of the head office staff will be in there somewhere. Um, so again, you know, if you're looking for a photograph of an ancestor and you know they worked for Thomas Cook in the early 1890s, it is likely that they are in, in those albums somewhere. And the third sort of main collection of records we have which relate and name staff specifically are contracts. Now, we don't have contracts for everybody. What we have is we have a series of large volumes which we call the agreement books. Now, these run from about 1870, well, 1873, probably, because that's when most of the business records begin, through to the late 1920s. So, essentially, the period where John was in charge and then his sons were in charge. Um, now, for that period, we have these series of volumes into which were copied all of the major contracts and agreements that the company made. Now, these can be with individuals, they can be with hotels, they can be with shipping companies, railway companies, airlines, automobile companies, there's a lot of those, and they are indexed. So we have an index to all of them. Now, unfortunately, the only members of staff that tend to appear in these agreement books are overseas agents or overseas branch managers because every one of their contracts was unique because every market was different, so their commission basis uh, was different in every market. The UK branch managers and UK head office staff tended to have standard contracts. So we might have an example of the standard contract, and sometimes we will have a list of names to whom that applied, but not always. So again, if you have an ancestor who worked for Thomas Cook overseas, which a lot of branch managers did, uh, because they often moved from head office in London perhaps to start with, then they might go to a UK office, then they might go to 
Paris or a continental office, and they may, as Mr. Durant Thorpe did, end up in America. I mean, he went from London to Paris to Boston and ended up being our, our agent in Boston for many years. So in that case, yes, we probably will have a contract. The one that's on display there is actually an original that we have, uh, although a copy of that also appears in the agreement books. And that is the agreement that was made between Thomas and John and Mr. John Breedle, who was the compiler of the original rail timetable. And that is his contract for that timetable in 1873, uh, for which he was paid a penny a copy. So, in summary, the archives contain a vast amount of material and information about travel for the period the mid-19th century to the present day. However, in terms of specific individuals, it, it's very much a case of when, where, who, who they were. The chances of finding information about a specific individual are quite slim, unless they were a very senior member of staff. Um, we don't have booking records en masse. We don't have a file for every member of staff. But we do have, as I've shown you, various records which do mention specific individuals. But if you want to know about what your ancestor might have done as a booking clerk or a head office, member of head office staff uh, or a uniformed representative uh, or one of a whole host of other things they could have done in working for Thomas Cook, or if you know your ancestors travelled on the continent, whether it was with Thomas Cook or not, I mean, chances are late 19th century, early 20th, you know, more likely than not it was with Thomas Cook. But even if they travelled independently, you know, most Thomas Cook customers actually travelled independently. They bought their tickets from Thomas Cook, but they didn't necessarily travel as part of a conducted party. So if you want information about the route they might have followed, how much it might have cost them, you know, the sorts of people who were going, then yes, we have all that information in the archives. So that, that's really where I want to leave it, just to say, you know, the Thomas Cook archives really are an unrivaled resource for anybody with an interest in the history of travel and tourism from a, an academic point of view, from the media point of view, or from a family historian point of view, or any other point of view. So that is where I think I'll stop. This event was recorded live on the 25th of March 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.